Abrams against United States, 1919. These are the facts. In 1917, before the end of the First World War, Congress passed a law known as the Espionage Act over the opposition of those who complained that it was, in effect, a modern version of the Sedition Act so unpopular in the early days of the Republic. However, the climate of the times was such that putting all questions of constitutionality aside, and even putting aside technical questions, the law by its terms was a wartime statute, the Attorney General found it a useful tool to suppress a growing radical unrest in this country. The circumstances of the conviction of Abrams and his associates are described in the majority opinion of the court which follows. But the historical importance of the case was not in its finding, but rather in the fact that it was the first of many dissenting opinions on the subject of freedom of speech and the press by Justice Holmes and Justice Brandeis. The Opinion of the Court by Mr. Justice Clark. The defendants were convicted of conspiring to violate the Espionage Act of 1917. They were charged with conspiring when the United States was at war with Germany to unlawfully print and publish pamphlets intended to incite and encourage resistance to the United States in the war and urging and advocating curtailment of production of ordnance and ammunition necessary to the prosecution of the war. It was charged that the defendants printed and distributed in the city of New York many copies of leaflets or circulars urging this resistance. It was admitted on trial that 5,000 of them had been printed and distributed, some by throwing them from a window of a building and others secretly. Consider the first of the two articles. After denouncing President Wilson as a hypocrite and a coward because troops were sent into Russia, it proceeds to assail our government in general. It is clearly an appeal to the workers of this country to arise and put down by force the government of the United States, which they characterize as their hypocritical, cowardly, and capitalistic enemy. The second article goes on. Workers in ammunition factories, you are producing bullets, bayonets, cannon to murder not only the Germans, but also your dearest best who are in Russia and are fighting for freedom. Workers, our reply to the barbaric intervention in Russia has to be a general strike. The manifest purpose of such a publication was an attempt to defeat the war plans of the United States by bringing upon the country the paralysis of a general strike, thereby arresting the production of all munitions and other things essential to the conduct of the war. Since much persuasive evidence was before the jury tending to prove that the defendants were guilty as charged, the judgment of the district court must be affirmed. The dissenting opinion of Mr. Justice Holmes. 
It seems too plain to be denied that the suggestion to workers in ammunition factories that they are producing bullets to murder their dearest and further advocacy of a general strike do urge curtailment of things necessary to the prosecution of the war within the meaning of the act. But to make that conduct criminal, that statute requires that it should be with intent by such curtailment to cripple or hinder the United States in prosecution of the war. It seems to me that no such intent is proved. A deed is not done with intent to produce a consequence unless that consequence is the aim of the deed. An actor does not do the act with the intent to produce it unless the aim to produce it is the proximate motive of the specific act. A patriot might think that we were wasting money on airplanes or making more cannon of a certain kind than we needed and might advocate curtailment with success. Yet even if it turned out that the curtailment hindered and was thought by others to have been obviously likely to hinder the United States in the prosecution of the war, no one can say such conduct is a crime. I do not find the intent required by the statute in any of the defendant's words. It is evident from the beginning to the end that their only object is to help Russia and to stop American intervention there against the popular government, not to impede the United States in a war that it was carrying out. But let me pass to a more important aspect of the case. I refer to the First Amendment of the Constitution that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. I do not doubt that the United States constitutionally may punish speech that produces or is intended to produce a clear and imminent danger that it will bring about substantive evils that the United States constitutionally may seek to prevent. The power undoubtedly is greater in time of war than in time of peace, because war opens dangers that do not exist at other times. But as against dangers particular to war, as against others, the principle of the right to free speech is always the same. It is only the present danger of immediate evil or an intent to bring it about that warrants Congress in setting a limit to the expression of opinion where private rights are not concerned. Congress certainly cannot forbid all effort to change the mind of the country. Now, nobody can suppose that the surreptitious publishings of a silly leaflet by an unknown man without more would present any immediate danger that its opinions would hinder the success of the government arms. In this case, sentences of 20 years imprisonment have been imposed for the publishing of two leaflets that I believe the defendants had as much right to publish as the government has to publish the Constitution of the United States now so vainly invoked by them. Even if I am technically wrong and enough can be squeezed from these poor and puny anonymities to convict them, the most nominal punishment is all that possibly can be inflicted 
unless the defendants are to be made to suffer not for what the indictment alleges, but for the creed that they avow. It is a creed that I believe to be the creed of ignorance and immaturity when honestly held, but which no one has a right even to consider in dealing with the charges before the court. Prosecution for the expression of opinion seems to be perfectly logical. If you have no doubt of your premises or your power and want a certain result with all your heart, you naturally express your wishes in law and sweep away all opposition. To allow opposition by speech seems to indicate that you think the speech impotent or that you doubt either your power or your premises. But when men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct, that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. That, at any rate, is the theory of our Constitution. It is an experiment, as all life is an experiment. Every year, if not every day, we have to wager our salvation upon some prophecy based upon imperfect knowledge. While that experiment is part of our system, I think that we should be eternally vigilant against attacks to check the expression of opinions that we loathe and believe to be fraught with death unless they so immediately threaten immediate interference with the lawful and pressing purposes of the law that an immediate check is required to save the country. Only the emergency that makes it immediately dangerous to leave the correction of evil counsels to time warrants making any exception to the sweeping command, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. I regret that I cannot put into more impressive words my belief that in their conviction upon this indictment, the defendants were deprived of their rights under the Constitution of the United States. <laughs>